I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack. Today, we are here with Lizzie Dastin, special guest and the host, actually. So today, myself, Bua, Lizzie, we're all here. We're all going to discuss one of the most interesting relationships in the history of art, because through art history, you always have duos. You have Batman and Robins everywhere, right? You have Matisse and Picasso. You have... Van Gogh. And Gauguin. And Van Gogh and Gauguin are who we're going to discuss today. And I'd like to say, before we jump off into that, that I myself understand the value of that as a working artist. My atelier has always been shared uh, with my partner, Ruben Hickman. Now he has a wife. He lives on his own. I do as well. But for many, many years, we shared the same studio. And when he moved away, he lived in a garage for a while at someone's house. I would drive up to La Cañada from Los Feliz with my easel and my canvas and my paints. And I would work there all night. And he would do the same coming down to Los Feliz to work with me all night. Because there's something really important about a camaraderie and a friendship with respect to art especially another artist who was as good, if not better than you, which is, in my situation, Ruben was better than me, because he had a critical eye, an arcane eye, that would be able to evaluate my paintings both reasonably and critically where I respected that. And you need that, because other, otherwise, all these contemporary artists today, you hear, oh, I work in a bubble. I don't have anybody, you hear that all the time. I don't really know what's going on in the world because I'm working in a bubble. Bullshit. That's probably why your work sucks, and let's be honest. But when you have somebody there, you have a Matisse criticizing a Picasso, you have a Gauguin criticizing a Van Gogh, it drives you to be better. It takes your level higher. Same thing when you have a big brother Little brother, you know what I mean? Big brother, little brother are going to make you better when you play basketball outside. It's the same dynamic in art. Just because you're doing art, if you have somebody else that's always there and they're really, really good and talented, it creates a rivalry. And that takes your game higher. It does. And there's an element of competition, as you noted. And I think especially with Gauguin and Van Gogh, they upped each other's game. And you can see a transmutability between the work that was produced in this 19 or not. <laughs> They're going to drop a bomb on us real fast. What? Go ahead. OK. Oh, we made it. We survived. Did you hear that? It was crazy. <laughs> the two artists worked together for nine weeks in Arles and they produced an inordinate amount of paintings within that time. I believe Van Gogh produced over 30 and Gauguin produced about 20. And so that is a really productive, very creatively fertile time, all in nine weeks. Wow. I know. And so before we talk about that dynamic, I think that we should contextualize where we're at, who mm -hmm. these guys are, and why their work matters. So... We are coming out of the Impressionist era, which we've talked about on the show, and it's all about perception and light and color and how these things change based on the changing environmental circumstances of the day. 
And that was a revolutionary way to see art. It was all about the presence of that particular moment. But what subsequent artists believed was that the Impressionist canvases were vacant, that there was no emotional impact to them because they were all about observational inquiry. And so people like Van Gogh, Gauguin, Cezanne, and Seurat, they were trying to imbue the Impressionist canvases with some gravitas. And they all had different approaches. Seurat thought that the introduction of scientific opticality was a way that the Impressionist canvases could be more meaningful. With pointillism. Exactly. Cezanne, he believed in a multiplicity of perspectives. And so you're not looking at something from one vantage point. You're looking at it from about 20. Which is the influence of Einstein's theory of relativity. Exactly. And then Van Gogh, he was incredibly emotional. And so his use of color was not optical. It was not observational. It was emotional. And then Gauguin, he invested his canvases with a spirituality and a sense of memory and vision, and not just about the translation of a world as he saw it at that time. Yeah. And let's also contextualize Gauguin in that uh, I believe Gauguin was born in 1848, and he was uh, he was he was raised in uh, France, but also traveled to Peru, where he as a as a young child, and then came back to France, obviously, to paint. But he was a stockbroker, who was not a trained painter, and that was really the difference. Uh, between really Van Gogh and Gauguin and some of the other Impressionists uh, who really had a classical training. Even Paul Cezanne had a classical training. I mean, if you look at his early works, you see some really beautiful figures and, and classical still lifes, classical figures, which is what they did back in the academic days in the salon. They just would sit there and render a figure all day that was crazy and sculptures and, and artifacts. And so he was trained in the typical salon uh, style, as where Gauguin was like, I just like to paint, you know, and he got into painting more when he met Pissarro, uh, most like, almost like a lot of people did, you know, Degas in, included, but uh, Van Gogh was the same, he wasn't really a technical guy, he didn't come from the classical world, these were two guys who really uh, loved to paint, because they loved to paint, they had to paint. You imagine having a solid job like a stockbroker. And look, I don't know what a stockbroker was like in the 1860s. But I don't know if it was like you were a G's up, you know, like you are on Wall Street here. You know what I mean? But like back then, I still think you're leaving a really cool, high-paying job. But, you know, Gauguin was a weird dude. He was a, a, a tall, strong, tough dude. He was uh, rough around the edges. He was really into... Uh, the carousel of the brothels. He would go from brothel to brothel to brothel, and that's what actually got him syphilis in the end. That's what caught him in the end because uh, he died young in his early 50s. But um, he, was, he was also like a crazy dude. He was like a wild guy. He was an alcoholic. He was a fighter. He would get into a lot of fights, and he was really into women, and he was gallivanting just around... And he was also a liar. He was just a weird liar. He, he, I don't know if you know this, but he would tell everybody he had ink and blood. Like, that was his main thing. Like, he was just, he was one of those verbose, rough around the edges, but probably really charming guys who 
wound up meeting Van Gogh in Paris. That was initially, right? They came together in Paris. They formed a friendship, a friendship, a rivalry, a a camaraderie, and a a incredible artistic connection with. And and that's where they started. And I think they, oh, let me just, sorry, just the one little point is that it's interesting because I noticed that people come together from different schools and it was almost the fact that Van Gogh and Gauguin didn't have a school that they came together. It was like the school of just loving art for art's sake and not really coming through a salon or an academy. And also wanting to take the visual language of impressionism and push it to another dimension that felt more resonant and more emotional and more spiritual. And so perhaps that was the school. It was Mm -hmm. recognizing and acknowledging the value of what was being currently produced or what had been produced in the past and wanting to be propulsive with that. And it's interesting that you said the ink and blood lie because it makes me think of Gauguin's later work when he retreated to Tahiti Mm -hmm. to connect with a more primitivized world. And I'm putting that in air quotes because it is deformingly ethnocentric to believe that about non-Western cultures. But nevertheless, that was in the water at the time. And Gauguin wanted to return to the source. And I hadn't heard that anecdote that you shared, but it would be in line with that painterly choice to move and to paint in a way that felt more connected to nature and more connected to something that was an essence. And he was also interested in young women, very young women. Yeah, he's with a 13-year-old, right? Yeah, exactly. And he painted her in his pastiche of Manet's Olympia, which is a pastiche of Velasquez and all of these other artists. And so there is a really strong historical lineage of women who are rendered nude and reclining on some sort of surface. And in Gauguin's version of that. It is a woman of color, a Tahitian woman who is on her stomach and not on her back, and a very young woman. And what what's that painting called? It's uh, There's a Tahitian title. I, I can't recall it at the moment, but we will come back to it. So anyway, when he was introduced to Van Gogh, it was through the connection of Van Gogh's brother, Theo. And Gauguin was producing works that were incredibly spiritual. The best example would be Vision After the Sermon, which is from 1888, and it represents these women, these nuns in Breton. They're all wearing similar outfits with the habit or the the big hat that would indicate their status in life as nuns, and they are outside, and then what's happening on the right portion of the canvas is a collective vision, And so it isn't about what is logically and literally being perceived. It's about a collective spiritual memory or reverie that's being induced. And we see Jacob wrestling an angel. And then in the center of the composition, there's this big tree that bifurcates the whole scene. And so I think that tree is an interesting compositional choice to divide the present from the memory, but it also shows Van Gogh's awareness, or ha, Gauguin's awareness of Japanese woodblock prints. And so he is taking those compositional choices and an interest in flattening the space and also an interest in creating these diagonal lines, and he's synthesizing those characteristics in his new form of art. Yeah, and I think that since we're talking about this relationship and the connection of these two. I think that Van Gogh really admired Gauguin and as, a, as, a, as, a, as the man. 
And when they moved, when, when Van Gogh went to Arles, he spent some time there without Gauguin. And by the time Gauguin came to Arles, you know, he wasn't the big dick Willie that he was before to Van Gogh because Van Gogh had improved dramatically in a short amount of time on his own. And because he improved on his own, it was like, we had a different dynamic in Paris. You were my, you were this master mentor, the man. And right now, the teacher and the student connection or the mentor and the, you know, protege, that's kind of gone away. And I'm, I'm Van Gogh, the artist. You're Gauguin, but I'm now independently making moves and I'm doing well. And I think that was the uh, changing point. And that's where you said all the work was created because it was in this Petri dish of intensity, of they've already worked together, you know, just like you're dating. All of the wonderment is gone. That's, you know, we know each other now. Now it's time to see who's the real master. And I think that that pushed them both to take it to another level. And they, you know, they had other points of their career, you know, when he when he left. And I think that Gauguin winds up leaving because they get into a huge fight because they disagreed all the time. And Van Gogh pulls a knife on him. Did you hear about that? I did. So do you know more about that? And I you're gonna do. say that he cut his ear <laughs> cut his ear off because of that, which is who knows why he really cut his ear off or whatever. Right. So Van Gogh was psychologically fragile. And during those nine weeks, he just, I think, declined into an even more depressive state. And we can see this through the lens of his own self-portraiture, because when he was earlier in his career, you can see there's more of a connection in his his eyes, and then eventually that gaze that mm. activates the viewer just turns inward. That's smart. That's a really good, everybody listening out there, that's a crazy interesting observation because you think about the great portrait artists of all time, uh, the self-portrait artists of all time, Rembrandt being number one, Van Gogh's got to be almost number two. Uh, and if you think about that dynamic, you could if you if you love art history, you love art, you love studying, just looking for something like that in these people's oeuvres is so amazing to see that he's looking at the world with wonderment and gaze and really connection. And then all of a sudden he's kind of like lost, like almost disassociative personality disorder lost. Exactly. And that is what was happening. And that was what Gauguin was reflecting in his writing from this time. And supposedly they were at a cafe and they got into an argument, as you mentioned, they always did. And then Van Gogh took out a razor and was threatening Gauguin in the streets with this razor. And so Gauguin, afraid for his life, he left, and he stayed in a hotel for the night. And then Gauguin, or oh, their names are so similar, I keep on confusing them. Van Gogh took that very same razor and mutilated his left ear and then wrapped that ear up and took it to a brothel, delivered it to a sex worker named Rachel and said that she had to preserve it. It was of the utmost importance. And then when Gauguin found out about this, he rightly got super freaked out and then he left. The artists never saw each other again. However, they did maintain their friendship via letters. Yeah. we. I, you know what? I've heard stories that he did that self-mutilation of his ear for a woman like on another note. So who knows what the real story is, but whatever it is, it's an interesting story as well, because it's become the reason 
one of the main reasons why, you know, all these idiosyncratic behaviors, uh, how we view all artists. Like, artists are crazy, like Van Gogh cutting his ear off, and that becomes like everybody. It, it's, it's, you know, that people think artists are all introspective, self-mutilating, poor, uh, poor meaning broke, not poor of spirit, but broke eccentrics. And I think that story is one of the main story that contributes to the mythology of people's perceptions Get of Get out of my brain. I was just going to say I'm the sorry. mythology. I'm sorry. I live there. I live there. <laughs> it's like that 80s poster of MTV where the guy's standing back on the couch and he's clicking the remote control and the like you know the wind's blowing at him. That classic black and white poster that was every college dorm in the 80s. That's who I am in your brain. I'm that guy with the remote control on the couch in your brain. And then click, you can talk now. What's it like in there? It's dark. <laughs> it's fucking dark. It's fucking scary. It scares the shit out of me. But you're absolutely right. This really might be the genesis of that mythology of the creative intersecting with the chaotic. And Van Gogh is such an illustrative uh, example of that and a tragic example of that too. And we know that he died by suicide when he was 37 years old, very shortly after this exchange creatively with Gauguin. So we talked about one of Gauguin's paintings and I think that we should do the same for Van Gogh. There is a work that I think is just so tragic and poignant and beautiful and sophisticated that he produced during these nine weeks called The Night Cafe. And it's an interior scene of a cafe, and it is predominantly yellow. And on its surface, you would just think that it's a banal, mundane scene. There are figures in the cafe, but to me, the way that the figures are rendered just heightens the isolation and the loneliness, because there is nothing that makes you feel lonelier than not connecting when you're in a crowd. And Hopper was also a great example of painting this isolation within group settings, but Van Gogh does it earlier. Mm. And in this scene, it's just so frenzied and energetic in a really depressing way. And the tilting of the floor is also such an incredible choice because all of the furniture, there are cafe tables, there's a pool table, everything looks like it's a second from slipping into the viewer's space. Right. And so it makes us feel this swirling, dizzying, drunken state where either we're drunk as a viewer or the people are drunk. There's just something disorienting about it. And the way that the light is emanating from the artificial light bulbs at the top, it's almost like a buzzing sensory mm -hmm. auditory thing too. That's really good. That's, and that's exactly how I feel with this painting. My only disagreement with you respectfully, I respect you before I say this, I respect <laughs> you. And now I'm going to say something that is completely opposite of you, as if I don't respect you, but I do respect you. So completely disregard what I'm saying. Um, no, don't, because it's important. So what I'm saying is that oftentimes from an artist's point of view, I don't know if that was a conscious choice that Van Gogh was making about his perspective and his dizzying effect. I really don't. I don't think it was like, I don't think that he was a guy who figured out perspective. I don't think he was a guy who did a lot of pre-studies. I don't think he was a guy who like, traced it on tracing paper until the perspective was like spot on. I just think he was fucking up the perspective. And I think he was okay with that. And I don't think that he knew that when you do, when things aren't aligned in perspective, it feels like things are slipping off the earth. And it feels like, uh, you know, that there is a kind of a chaotic orchestral feeling to the architecture. It's like that there's 
no groundingness. Like sometimes you feel something's like not grounded. It's because it's out of perspective and it feels like it's going to go and just take off into the atmosphere. I think that he wasn't a technical person and it didn't matter. In other words, his lack of technicality, which he always strove for, by the way, was what made him so good because he painted from an, an emotional uh, heartstring wellspring, heartstring wellspring, because my name is Jay Ski and I like to bring the noise. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so I feel like he really came from this from a different perspective. And I think that's, once again, going to the what is connecting Gauguin and Van Gogh is that they are coming from this emotional place. Like you said initially with this conversation, you said that was the difference of impressionism, right? We'll bring it back to that. That painting is such an it's so emblematic of your opening statement. That painting of a still life, or I mean of an uh, an environment, which the impressionists did all the time, becomes emotional. It's all of a sudden it's emotional. And the impressionists did that for years and it didn't feel emotional. It felt pretty and the colors were beautiful and their light was dancing, but it was like ballet, it wasn't like hip hop. Van Gogh was like hip hop. He was like, uh, 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 you know what I mean? Like he became like DMX because he brought such emotional like angst to the piece. He was like Kurt Cobain, like he was like grunge, right? As whatever it was, he was emotional. And I feel like even though the Impressionists were breaking ground from the classic Bouguereau painters of the salon, all of a sudden we're breaking ground. We're still doing ballet. We're doing a different kind of ballet. It was foofy. Van Gogh came and said, no, nah, this is fucking rock and roll. I'm disruptive. I'm bringing the noise. And that's how I felt. And Gauguin did it in his own way, too. And I feel like that's the real difference of Impressionists and the, you know, the, next, the next breed, the, next, the, the Cezans, the Van Goghs, the Gauguins. And I think that they found that voice because they were so fucking competitive. Because they wanted to outdo each other all the time. Even though they were doing it from a different style, I think Van Gogh was looking at Gauguin stuff, much like a lot of artists do. Like Picasso looked at Matisse and said, oh my God, that guy's so good. Matisse probably sitting there going, oh my God, I suck compared to Picasso. And Van Gogh and Gauguin were the same way. Like Gauguin's like, man, you are my, you will work under me. I am the man. But his mind's going, damn, he's, he's good. You know what I mean? I got to get my game up. That was their dynamic. It was. And they also, just to further extend that, they would paint the same subjects. And so when... Two people are painting the same thing. Obviously, there was meant to be a comparative element to that. And they painted this one woman. I can't remember her last name. Well, no, name. he, Gauguin, Grenier or Grenier, something. Grenier, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, she, Gauguin drew her. And then when he left uh, Van Gogh as a nod to his greatest friend ever and greatest rivalry ever, he painted that. So Gauguin left that drawing behind. And when he was gone... Van Gogh painted her several times as a nod to him. And in a different way, obviously, a different feeling, different emotion. But that's what happened. That drawing was left behind and go and Van Gogh realized it in color. Ooh, interesting. And they also painted each other. Yes. Those paintings, I think, are just so phenomenal. And they're so energized with this dynamic and this relationship and this rivalry. And they're really different. Van Gogh's portrayal of Gauguin versus Gauguin's portrayal of Van Gogh. So look these guys up if you don't know them. I'm sure a lot of you guys know their work, uh, but just check them out. And, and, and let's really think about 
the importance of working together, having good, solid connections in the studio. Because all of you fine artists out there who say you create in a bubble, you still live in this world. And so don't bullshit us. Pop that bubble and see how your work can be expanded and improved upon through the engagement with other artists. Yes. And we'd like to thank everybody out there for listening. And of course, you know, all we ask is for a review. This is not a paid in the shade situation whatsoever. This is clearly my studio. Uh, so, you know, we just want you to write us a good review and we would like to thank Tommy John, right? Oh, yeah. And if you would like to thank Tommy John or check out his underwear, which is pretty fantastic, just enter in the promo code ARTATTACK for a discount on uh, upon your checkout. Okay, guys. Peace. <laughs>